We broke up the series a little bit. If you remember three weeks ago, Adam LaRue preached through an introduction to this judge we come in contact with now named Gideon. Maybe you're familiar with the story of Gideon, but uh, the story of Gideon that we're going to cover today is what I tend to think people are most familiar with. Uh, The story of Gideon that Adam covered maybe we're not as familiar with, and next week we're going to talk about Gideon one more time from three different areas of his life. We find Gideon, as Adam talked to us uh, three weeks about and, uh, and preached three weeks about, we, we saw that he's, uh, like we see a lot in God's Word, an unlikely hero. We find him uh, hiding in a wine press, and, uh, and the reason he's hiding in there is because he doesn't want the Midianites to see him, and so he's peeking out as he, as he sifts and does the work that he needs to do. He's hiding from the Midianites because he's, he's very fearful. God calls him, and when he does, he calls him a mighty warrior. We almost hear Gideon laugh at the name. We almost hear Gideon laugh back at God saying, uh, I don't think you're talking to the right guy. But he called him. He called him this mighty warrior while, like I said, while he was hiding from his enemies, while he's being sort of cowardice. Uh, Gideon needed a lot of assurance that God was the one indeed calling to lead the people in the battle. There were so many other false gods in present society that he didn't, he didn't know completely if the voice he was hearing was the voice of God. He didn't really even know how to discern it. So he asked God some bold requests on how to prove, prove to me that you are the one true God. And God does. God graciously answers his request. So after he becomes absolutely sure that this calling is from God, he's ready to lead men in the battle. He says, yes, I will do this. But God has some more faith testing to do in his people's lives and in Gideon's life. And so he's going to use Gideon to lead them through all of that. And that's where we pick up today. So you can turn with me to Judges chapter 7. Uh, verses 1 through 25 we're going to look at today. If you're looking in the Bible that's in front of you, that's page 141. Give you a little bit of help finding it. If uh, you need a Bible, take that one. If you know someone who needs one, take it and give it to them. Uh, We want to see God's Word in as many people's hands as possible. So to set this up before we read it, uh, we, we need to know that the Midianites have terrorized the Israelites for over seven years. We saw that in chapter 6. Seven years, they have just completely terrorized God's people. We're left to assume that if the Israelites are going to survive this, they're going to need every man to fight in this certain, certain to come battle. So with that as the expectation, knowing that for them to, they're going to have to fight the Midianites, they all know it, and for them to actually pull this thing off, they're going to need every able-bodied man in Israel, in the Israelite camp, to fight. That's the way they're looking at this. That's the way we're looking at it. And with that as the expectation, let's see what God does. Chapter 7. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them, but the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from the Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, 
and 10,000 remained. Let's just stop there for a second. Let that sink in. He stands in front of 32,000 warriors, the mighty warriors of Israel. And he says, if you are fearful or timid to go into battle, you are released. No questions asked. No one will taunt you on your way out. No one will call you sissies. Just step away and head back to the mountain. And when he said that and gave them license, 22,000 of them left. 22,000. Let's keep reading. The Lord said to Gideon, verse 4, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And anyone whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Now let those numbers sink in a little bit. 32,000 people started off this war. They're going to charge the Midianites, 32,000 of them. God cuts down 22,000 of them just by giving them a chance to leave. And then he does this water test, which we'll get into in a little bit, and all but 300 are cut loose. So now Gideon, the mighty warrior, who we already know deals with some fearfulness himself, is set to go against the Midianite army who has terrorized them for seven years with only 300 men. Verse 9. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant. And you shall hear what they say. And afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay among the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance." When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the three men into three comp 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with, you, with me then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. When they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands, then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. 
Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army, and the army fled as far as Beth Shittah, toward the Zerah, as far as the border of Abel-Mehalah by Tabith. And the men of Israel were called out of Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Ends pretty gruesomely, right? That is a pretty phenomenal story. That is one that Hollywood would probably destroy it and make it not what it was supposed to be. But it's a great story, right? But let's walk through this because uh, there's a whole lot that's happened here. We already looked at the numbers a little bit, but there's a couple questions that come up. And one of them is, why did God want fewer men? I think that's the one we have to start with. Because the way this starts is that the fleece, you remember the fleece test, right? Gideon is convinced twice now that God is the one telling him what to do. And so he is beyond convinced. He knows that God is the one that is leading him to do this. So he assembles the army. And just as they're ready to fight, finally ready to fight, at least as far as Gideon knows, God says, you have too many men. Now, before we really... Let that sink in completely. Let's go back to something that he says that, uh, that I think is going to be important for us to put this all in the context. Starting at verse 12, listen again to what he sees when he gets to their camp. He's able to sneak into their camp. He and his, his servant, Pura, are able to sneak into the camp of the Midianites and listen to what he sees. The Midianites and the Malachites and all the people of the east lay among the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. Now, this is hyperbole, obviously. He's exaggerating. But in his mind's eye, the way he sees the soldiers is there are so many soldiers in this army, in this valley, that it looks like locusts have just flocked to this one area. On top of that, he sees their camels, which are used in war, and, and they were bigger and stronger and faster. So if you had camels, you had sort of like, uh, you had tanks, modern-day tanks almost. And he says that looking out over their campment, the soldiers were like locusts in their numbers that had flocked there, and the camels looked like they had outnumbered the, sea, the sand on the seashore. So we don't get a clear picture, a clear number here. We don't get like an absolute, like we have with the Israelites, we know how many men started with 32,000 men. What we don't know is for the Midianites how many people. What we do know is that that was Gideon's picture of what he was up against. It leads us to believe that there were way more than 32,000 Midianites that they were going to go up against. And yet, when he sees this, he has already been cut down to 300 men. By the time he sees the intricacies of what he's up against, he has already been cut down to 300 men. But it still begs the question, why? Why did God want less men? 
Listen to what he says again. He starts in in verse 2. The Lord says to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand. Why? Lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. So what he's saying is, if you go into this battle with 32,000 men, you are going to be tempted to believe that you did something. You're going to be tempted to believe that you were well-equipped, you were trained, and you wanted it more than them, so you went in and you fought. And you, are, you will get the glory for this. You will tend to convince yourself that you've done something in your own strength. And as we see throughout Scripture, That when we convince ourselves that we've done something in our own strength or power, we set ourselves up as alternate saviors. We create a storyline that is outside of the bounds of who God's character is. And this is a really horrible and terrible thing to believe. It's a terrible thing to believe that we have the power to save ourselves. Because if in this instance the Israelite people believe they can conquer the Midianites in and of their own strength, then what do they really need God for? The lesson we always have to learn is that salvation is by God's gracious action, not by earning it with ours. And so when when we ask ourselves, how do we see the gospel in situations like this? What's the same thing with us? God's saying, no, you're not going to go in there with all kinds of embattlement. You're not going to be able to firm yourself up with enough force to be able to win yourself the victory of salvation. You're going to have to become weak. You're going to have to become insignificant. You're going to have to weed out the fear. And then you'll experience victory, but it won't be because you did anything. It's because I did something. That's what God's narrative is. Gideon is learning this in a very real way. Now, let's go back and look. The the army gets cut down from 32,000 to 10,000. Now, God knows what he's doing here because fear is contagious. If you have 32,000 men going into war and 22,000 of them are fearful men, that is a contagious thing. And fear will infect the other 10,000 very quickly. God knows what he's doing. He's weeding out the fear in the camp because even fear, just fear, can derail God's plan. So God's command, actually, in this first cut down, God's command and human logic, they match up here. God's command and the, the commanding generals could put their heads together and say, yeah, that makes sense. We can do this with 10,000 then. I'd rather have 10,000 brave men than, than 22,000 cowards, right? There's human logic and God's plan, and they, they match up. The second cut down, though, different story. They got out of the water, and God says, however they drink the water is how we will do this cut down. Now, this was a God thing. Now, we can make all kinds of assumptions. I've listened to sermons. I've read things that talk about why these 300 men were picked, that they were actually watching and being watchful. And there's all kinds of stuff that said, but we only know what the text tells us. And what the text tells us is that the guys who got down and drank were the ones God picked. The ones that didn't went home. So we can give these guys all kinds of credit and make assumptions about the passage, and I'm not knocking anybody that has done that. That theory could be true. All we know is what we know. And what it says here 
is that God said that these are the men that you're going to take and these are the men you're not. So the question of why and what was so significant about these 300, I don't know. What I do know is they're the ones God picked. And he chose this, how they chose the method by which they delivered water to their body was how God picked and weeded them out. What significance that has, we'll have to wait till this side of eternity to ask God, but I'm guessing by the time you get in front of Jesus, you won't want to ask that question. So here's what we do know. Gideon starts with 32,000 men, and before he actually goes into battle, he watches God trim his force by over 99%. I'm not a math whiz. I checked that several times. Over 99% of the fighting force, gone. Before he actually goes into battle. Now, once he knows, once he knows what he's up against, once he knows who he's fighting with, God lets him see what he's up against. Think about that. The, the cutdowns have happened. He's at 300 men. And that's when God says, if you're still fearful, now I want you to go down into the camp. Now I'm going to give you a, a front row seat to what you're about to step into. So he steps into the camp, and he sees it. So I think we see the principle of salvation in the book of Judges all over the place. We see it throughout the whole word of God, obviously, but we see it in the story of Gideon because he's not a likely candidate to lead his people into victory. He's not a likely candidate to do this just like all the other judges before him. He had weaknesses. Now his whole army even has a weakness in its numbers and in its size. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Starting in verse 2, Paul says this, I know a man, by the way, it's on page 670 if you'd like to turn there. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with the weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This isn't just Paul saying this. This is Paul echoing the whole of God's word. It's when we realize our brokenness and we realize our deficiencies, we are able to see God for who He really is. But when we see ourselves as strong and capable... We see ourselves as enough. We create a narrative for ourselves where God is just a bit character in the story of our lives. He's not the story. 
in our lives. There's three ways I think this works out. One is our weak, when we see our weaknesses, it's the basis for salvation. We can't be saved if we think we can do it on our own. If there's a way that you can create a pathway to God in and of yourself, then you don't need Jesus to do it for you. In which case, salvation and the whole storyline of God is negated for you. It's works-based. And that's anti-God. That's anti-the gospel. You have to be able to, we have to be able to see our weaknesses clearly. We have to be able to come to the end of ourselves for the narrative of salvation to actually work in our hearts. The second thing that's seeing our weaknesses, it explains how repentance works. Now, if I, if I came to you today and I said that I paid for one of your monthly bills, you don't know how much joy to feel until you, you know how much the bill cost. If I paid your $14 bill for something borderline insignificant, you'd be like, oh, that's cool. I don't know why you would have done that, but thanks. But if I tell you I came and paid your mortgage for the month and your car payment, which I'm not going to do, by the way. But if I did, the amount of which has been paid for you is what equals the amount of joy you know you're going to have in the experience. So you cannot understand the, the intricacies and, and the details of how repentance works until you know how much has been paid on your behalf. And to be able to know how much has been paid on your behalf you have to know how weak you are in and of yourself. We realize our weakness and then we see God's strength because His kindness, because of His kindness, we repent. It says that God's kindness is what leads us to repentance. It's because we see that we're weak. We see that we are really garbage without Him. We have nothing to offer Him. Anything that we can bring at His feet is just burned up. Paul uses the word scubula, which is the dirtiest word for poop he could come up with. I won't say it here, but it's whatever the worst one you can imagine, that's the one he's using. And he, he says that all of our righteousness, all of our good deeds, all of the strengths, all of our talents, our, all of our abilities, apart from Jesus, are just scubula, which is like I said, it's, it's where all the waste from the city went. It was the scubula pile. I like the word scubula. It's not as offensive as what I could say in its place, but it's just as bad. So you don't know that. So you don't know to be offended right now. But that's what Paul compares all of our righteousness and all of our deeds and all of our talents and all of us to. In the face of God and who he is, we, that's what we are. And then we see that God is still sitting there offering himself to us. And we see his kindness in the midst of our failure. And we see his kindness in the midst of our weakness. And it leads us to repentance because we say, if, if this is what I'm bringing God, and yet he still wants me, why would I not want that? So that's what it means when it says that God's kindness is what draws us to repentance. And then we receive the prize of Jesus himself, salvation. The third way that seeing that our weaknesses, it shows how we grow as followers of Jesus. Because when good things become God-like things to us, 
we don't see our weaknesses as clear as we need to. When the good things of this world start to become godlike to us, we stop seeing our weaknesses. It's the athlete that works out constantly and has a diet regimen and, and is still able to do so much stuff on his or her own talent. And at the end of the day, still feels like there's something missing. But yet, still feels like they have accomplished a whole lot. It's, it's this putting godlike status on ourselves or on our stuff, and it removes our need. The only way that Gideon and these 300 men can go into battle and win is because they know going into it that they're going to lose without, without God. That's the only reason they can win. That's the only reason they can go into it. 300 men going into battle and they don't even take a sword. They have two hands to carry things. Two hands. What do they carry with them? A torch and a trumpet. Right? These 300 men went into battle knowing that without God, they were going to all die. It's their weakness and understanding their weaknesses is what led them to believe and have faith that God is who He says He is. That's how we grow. That's discipleship, folks. Discipleship is just constantly being reminded of who we are without Jesus. And then that produces in us a hunger to have more of Him. We need each other to point that out in each other's hearts and lives. We need discipleship. We need to come alongside each other because we need to know that we're all weak together because the only strength that we can muster is stuff that we get from God, not the strength we get from one another. If you feel like you're strong because you're with the body, it's because Jesus has indwelled His people through His Spirit. So Gideon finds confidence in all of this. He finds confidence after he experiences his weaknesses. And then he hears this dream that he's in the encampment and the guy has a dream and says, I had this weird dream. You know, imagine these two soldiers sitting around like, dude, I had the craziest dream last night. A loaf of bread comes rolling off the hill into the tent, hits the side of the tent, and the tent turns upside down and we all die. Crazy, right? And his buddy looks at him and goes, that's Gideon. That loaf of bread's Gideon. We're all going to die. Now, Gideon hears this, and he says that gives him extreme confidence because now he sees that they actually are starting to fear some of this stuff, that he's, he's hearing it in their voices. He knows that that was God's sign to him. Just like all the signs before, God graciously provides him with one more to give him just another boost of confidence to step into a place that feels very scary to him. Now, Gideon goes back, and he gives this plan out. Now, this is where I believe Gideon has become the mighty warrior. At this point, I believe this is where the moniker God gave him comes to fruition because he sits down with these 300 men and he inspires them to victory. He inspires them because he sits down and he says, listen, guys, this is what we're going to do. And he lays out the whole plan. And never once do we see anywhere implied in Scripture that the guys look at him and say, are you serious? This will not work. They just do it. That is a mighty warrior, right? A man who can inspire his men. Now, the plan that Gideon comes up with is great. And the biggest thing about this plan that might be easy to overlook is the timing Gideon chose for the attack. This is military genius on Gideon's part. He picks the transition of watches to go in. It's the middle of the night. 
A third of the force would be on watch. A third of the force would be ready to go on a new watch, just waking up. So this force that's been on watch is tired and exhausted and ready for bed. This third just got up, groggily ready to go to their post, and the other third is sound asleep. And at that watch in the middle of the night, that's when Gideon springs his attack. So whenever the trumpets blast and the groggy men are getting up and the the tired soldiers are starting to head to their tents and the ones who are sound asleep all get woken up at the same time and they see trumpets, they hear trumpets and they see flames and they hear this sword is for the Lord and for Gideon. They start to to come up out of their tents and they're scared and they don't know what to do. When they open the, the doors to their tents or the flaps or whatever they were, right? I've never seen their tents. They come outside of their tents, and all they see is men with swords walking and running through their village. They don't know that they're their own soldiers. They're all kind of groggy and tired, so they start attacking the people that are in their encampment with swords, and they all just start killing each other. Gideon's men never leave the hillside, and the Midianites just start killing each other. It's dark. They're all kind of groggy. The timing of this attack was perfect. And as they run outside of town, Gideon's plan has, has the, the, the tribe of Ephraim ready at the, at the headwaters of the Jordan to catch whoever does make it out. God's plan, Gideon's plan is genius. And yet, it's still God who gets the glory because Gideon would have never come up with that plan unless God trimmed his force down to 300 men. If Gideon would have had to come up with a plan with 32,000 men, it would have involved taking swords up against an army much larger than him. But when God trims his army down to 300, Gideon gets creative. And Gideon uses the mind God gave him and the circumstances he's been put in to come up with a plan for victory because he knows God's already promised it to him. The Midianites run away. They find Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim, on the banks of the Jordan to meet them. And there's this cool connection at the end of the chapter, if you hear it. Uh, The first time we meet Gideon, to go back to three weeks ago, he's hiding in a wine press, right? The next time that we see Gideon, and he's gaining a little bit of confidence, he's at the rock where the angel of the Lord burns up his offering. And now the kings that that God uses Gideon to defeat are killed at a wine press and at a rock. The enemy of God, the enemies of God aren't near as strong as they might appear to be in this story and in our lives. We need to realize that the enemies in our lives might be stronger than us, but they aren't stronger than the God that resides inside us. Now, in my opinion, there's a whole lot of takeaway here. There's a whole lot of application and a whole lot of stuff that can be taken out of this. But one of the things that just keeps coming to the surface for me is that, like we've covered already, is the weakness that Gideon understands in and of himself and in his own army. We already know that Gideon has experienced his own weakness and done battle with God over it. And now he's experienced the weakness, excuse me, of his own army. And he still has to go to battle with these men. And in that, he gets creative. The faith that he knows God, God has already proven himself faithful to Gideon. And because of that, he lives in that faithfulness. He develops a plan because he already knows victory is his. 
There's no fear in Gideon developing this plan for 300 men going against the Midianite army because he knows God has already attributed the victory to him, to himself, I mean, to God. So Gideon is smart. Gideon is intelligent. He has intelligence. And he does fight this battle. But in a way, we wouldn't expect. Clay pots over torches, blowing trumpets in the night. Not exactly what we would define a mighty warrior, right? But we see all of Midian go into calamity and crisis and their two main generals taken out at the end of this battle. So just like Gideon, we need to understand our weaknesses. We need to understand who we are in and of ourselves. We need to understand what we're capable of when we give ourselves over to the God of the universe who has already assured the victory to us. Folks, we know the back of the book. We know God wins. We know He wins. We know that we're up against an enemy that, up, that in and of ourselves we cannot win against. We cannot defeat Him. But the Spirit of the living God that comes and resides in us has already conquered sin, has already conquered death, has already conquered the things standing in our way. So there's no reason for fear. There's reason to embrace your weakness and know that in that, you only have strength that comes from God. You only have strength that comes into you through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. That's how God got back in relationship with us. That's how we got back in relationship with God. Next week, we're going to dig into Gideon one more time. We're going to see how he leads the men, how the, the stories of Gideon have made their way into the annals of history. If you read through the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 10, you get to hear about Gideon. And it says that there's not enough space to be able to give all the conquests of Gideon. It's pretty cool because we know how he started. We know this man lived a fearless life because he knew who he was in Christ. At the time, he just knew who God was. And he knew that God was faithful. He knew that God was kind. He knew that God had made promises and he was going to hold to those promises. And that needs to be our story too. Just like Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that we will boast in our weaknesses. For when we are weak, then he is strong, strong in us. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for your word. For the numerous times in scripture we have seen this play out. This same narrative through different characters and different circumstances. But we have seen major victory happen in people's lives because you have revealed our weaknesses to us. So God, we know that in and of ourselves, we don't have much to bring you, but what we do have, we offer to you, and we ask that you fill us with your spirit, that your kindness leads us to repentance, and we're able to go into this world, and, and we're able to give a life-giving message to a world that needs it. We're able to allow you to be our strength, Thank you for Gideon's story. Thank you for his faithfulness. Thank you for how he had to learn how to be courageous. So as we learn how to be courageous, as we learn how to trust you, may you do what you need to do to get us there. And then when we get there, Lord, I pray that we fight victoriously for your name and renown, just like Gideon did.